This Coin Week podcast is brought to you by PCGS, the official grading service of the SS Central America Treasureship. To learn more about how PCGS is grading these coins, visit PCGS.com. In this special episode of the Coin Week podcast, I sit with Chief Science Officer and Historian of the SS Central America Recovery Efforts, Bob Evans. Bob has been the face of this treasure ever since it first came to market many years ago. An impressive second cache of coins and other artifacts from the Central America were recovered in 2014, and many of these items will soon come to market. Bob took an hour off of his day where he's busy processing coins from the shipwreck to share with Coin Week readers and listeners exciting details about what has been recovered. Hi, Bob. Thanks for joining me on the Coin Week podcast. With curation underway of the SS Central America Treasure Hall. This must be a very exciting and stressful time for you. Well, it's my pleasure to be with you, Charles. And yes, indeed, it is a very exciting time. You've been involved with this shipwreck for more than 20 years. And for those just learning about this amazing cache of gold and silver coins, gold ingots and artifacts, explain how you became involved with the SS Central America treasure story and what it's meant to you in your professional and personal life? Well, the project founder, Tommy Thompson, uh, was literally my neighbor. And uh, I first heard about the SS Central America from him in, late in 1983. So this has actually been over 34 years for me now that I've been involved in one way or another with the SS Central America, its treasure, its story, the search for it at first. Um, I am, by, I guess, general acclamation, the chief scientist and historian of the project, the curator of the treasure, and a major source of information about the science and the history and the numismatics of uh, this wonderful historical treasure. And what was it like that moment you hit pay dirt and found the ship? I mean, that must have been a tremendously exciting moment, but I'm sure at the same time also terrifying because you still had to go down there and bring the gold back up. Well, I suppose one of the funny things about the actual finding of the ship is that, uh, of course, we were looking for it. This wasn't an accident. It took a lot of deliberation and a lot of years and a lot of research to take us to that moment. And I actually uh, was there the moment we first came across the paddle wheel in the middle of this shipwreck. But my immediate concern was that I felt that the ROV that we were employing at that time uh, and the direction we were going was a little too low and that the sonar indicated that, that was, there was a high spot that we were about ready to run into. <laughs> and, and so my, uh, I guess my immediate ecstatic reaction, which was certainly the reaction of all those around me in the control room, the other four guys who were there, um, was somewhat tempered by my concern for our equipment. And it wasn't until, I suppose, a few moments after that that it all began to settle in on me that, yeah, in fact, we hadn't found the Central America. Um, I guess this is a the, the clinical reaction of a scientist who's uh, dealing with information that maybe the others didn't have at that moment. Um, Yes, I was extremely excited, but I was also concerned. Um, then, when a week or so later, we got to the point where we uh, dusted off an area where there was a huge concentration of treasure, uh, which turned out to be the commercial shipment area, or a portion of it, uh, on the shipwreck, and we just see gold 
bars and coins carpeting the seafloor. Um, that was uh, just beyond belief. I mean, uh, talk about, we called it the Garden of Gold. And it uh, it literally looked like it. Uh, there were sea creatures living on the gold, which is is quite a scene to see these corals and uh, sponges and everything else actually attached to gold bars on the bottom. Um, the way you see them in coral reefs or the way you see them in other underwater scenes, and yet the the substrate of this uh, scene before us was this incredible treasure. It uh, quite a moment and and uh, quite a find you know at that time though when when you're recovering this gold i mean what was tommy thompson's reaction i mean obviously you know his legal problems you know which persist to this day have uh, hung a cloud over you know your memories i'm sure but before all of that you know this this moment must have really been the realization of an amazing journey for him he must have been on top of the world. Well, it was an amazing experience for all of us. I mean, I'd been working on it since 1983, and this was five years later. Um, you know, we'd gone through uh, a lot of trials and tribulations. We had competition out at sea. We had um, we spent a year on the wrong wrecks. Uh, I reviewed the sonar information that following winter and found another promising site in the sonar information, which turned out to be the actual uh, SS Central America. It had been called geology, in other words, a pile of rocks, um, by the sonar operators. But it turned out to resemble another pile of rocks, a shipwreck we spent a lot of time on that had uh, a huge pile of coal associated with it. We expected to find a huge pile of coal. Uh, coal was both the fuel and the ballast of the SS Central America. So, yeah, uh, the culmination of, of uh, you know, a lot of effort, a lot of dreams for all of us. As you know, there's always present a conflict between the collecting world, and the science of archaeology. Uh, collectors view themselves as playing a crucial role in preserving and studying objects, keeping them relevant to people in the present time, whereas uh, archaeologists have more of a focus on a standard of scientifically dissecting an area, excavating objects, accumulating data points about objects, you know, for the sole purposes of a broader scientific study. You know, these methods do not necessarily lend themselves towards the preservation of objects like coins, which uh, I argue uh, archaeologists have almost no interest or specialized knowledge in. Uh, but then when you add to this conflict something like a shipwreck, I think that's when things get even more interesting because not only is the SS Central America site an archaeological site, but it's also, it's also a graveyard. So in that situation, you know, when... You, when these coins and other objects are being recovered, they're being recovered from a, a hallowed site where, where scores of people lost their lives. So how sensitive was the team uh, in understanding and respecting the significance of uh, recovering these coins given the human cost uh, of that sunken ship? Well, the, the informational needs of a shipwreck such as this that uh, lies in the deep ocean where uh, you are spending tens of thousands of dollars a day working there um, go hand in hand with the archaeological need for both information and for um, the care that you take in uh, preserving that information as you are disturbing a site. Archaeology, by its very nature, is, well, let's say destructive. Uh, you are excavating. Um, it, I mean, you, <laughs> you cannot, you cannot do, do that except once. 
And so um, you do it very carefully, particularly when every uh, moment you are excavating on the site, you are in the act of creating information, but in fact also in the act of, of eliminating that information for all time. Um, as for the people, I have always been very mindful of the fact that 425 men lost their lives on this. Uh, I mean, it was the the greatest loss of life in an American peacetime uh, maritime disaster at sea. Uh, there were two other, I believe, uh, maritime disasters. One occurred in Lake Michigan, another on the Mississippi River, where there was greater loss of life. But these were river boats or lake boats, and 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 really not quite the same kind of story that what we're talking about here with a, a steamship carrying gold from the California Gold Rush. Uh, uh, lost in a hurricane off the Carolina coast. Um, every year on uh, September 12th, I send out a memorial email to a list of people that I have compiled over the year, reminding everyone to pause this evening at uh, 7 o'clock Eastern time and mark the moment when the Central America sank. Um, in 2014, I had the the honor and privilege of of conducting a service on the bow of our ship, uh, tolling the bell uh, for that minute uh, that uh, commemorated the loss all those many years ago. Uh, so we we pay attention to these details, and and we are not. Uh, we're not bulldozing an Indian mound here. We're we're uh, uh, we're very careful about the way we excavate. About the it goes hand in hand with what we're excavating. You cannot abuse these coins and these ingots as you're recovering them. Uh, you have to do it with great care in order to preserve its value and uh, both informational and, in fact, its monetary value. So right now you're processing and curating. Uh, second excavation of the site, but at the end of the first excavation, was the team aware that there was still quite a bit of material left to recover? I mean, was it not recovered as a matter of time and money, or was it a technological limitation that led to the second excavation? I suppose it was a combination of factors, uh, not really my decision. Um, and not really my area, but, um, you know, the accounting, there was a listed commercial shipment of $1.219 million and change. Um, the face value of what we had recovered, uh, came to over 90% of that, but it wasn't only that. It wasn't like the entire amount. And then as well, we knew that there was, uh, according to the historical record, perhaps an equal amount of treasure that was in the hands of passengers. This was a very wealthy enterprise. The California steamers, twice every month, uh, on the 5th and on the 20th of every month, the steamship left San Francisco, departed for the Pacific coast of Panama, of uh, the passengers and freight and including the treasure would cross on a railroad across the narrow isthmus of Panama and get on another steamship, in this case the SS Central America, uh, bound for New York City. And this was the fastest uh, means of communication. It was uh, the best way to move this massive amount of wealth that was coming from the new state of California and, in fact, making our nation into a world economic power at the time uh, had a huge impact on on uh, this nation's trajectory in the, in the field of nations. And uh, uh, there was treasure left on the site. There's no doubt about that. At the same time, um, for whatever reason, business, technological, 
um, legal. Uh, we got involved in uh, court cases with insurance companies who claimed that they had paid claims on the site, and and uh, so we had trials in Admiralty Court. We had a number of things going on that um, made it so after 1991, we did not go back out to sea. And then the business uh, went the way the business did, and uh, – Later, Tommy Thompson went the way that Tommy Thompson did. Well, for people who are not aware, I mean, Thompson's been hounded by his investors for an amount of gold that allegedly he retained uh, and also uh, proceeds relating to the business. The investors that took the company into receivership um, were owed an accounting of, of the business proceeds. And they were not given that. And the uh, the resulting receivership is, in fact, how the company ended up uh, finding a contractor and hiring me and others to go back out in 2014 and uh, resume the excavation of the Central America, knowing that there was treasure on this shipwreck site. So, Bob, after all this legal slog relating to the first shipwreck excavation, I mean, it was a spectacular sale that culminated afterwards, but there's still issues that lingered. And fortunately, you were able to remove yourself from that controversy, having nothing to do with uh, Tommy Thompson's legal problems. And you have worked uh, diligently, uh, showing integrity the entire time. But for you, I mean, what was it like Going back to the site where, you know, at first you had this, basically this crew, a team of dreamers who fulfilled their life's ambition, and, and now you're going back, and it's and it's business, and it's familiar, but yet so much has changed. Well, it's really interesting going back to this site after 23 years. Um, it was both poignant and emotional, as well as just utterly fascinating because there were some things that had changed on the site. Obviously, it had been you know almost a quarter of a decade of further degradation, further rust deposit. Um, I, I had left experiments down there uh, that we had devised back in the early 90s uh, to test for uh, wood degradation, for instance. And these untreated posts that we had stuck in the sediment down on the bottom, they had vanished. So they had been eaten all the way down to the mud line in just 23 years. It tells you something about how quickly that happened the first time around when the ship arrived there. Um, this ship must have been reduced to essentially rubble um, very quickly. In, in the first few years, and we did not find any live uh, shipworm animals inside of the remnants of those posts that we left down there in 1990. Um, so this was, um, to be able to even conduct a 23 or 24 year experiment as a scientist is a somewhat unusual thing. And, and so the fascination was certainly there um, for that. And at the same time, it was the same old site. Things are in the same places, and we can expect to find um, gold in the same places, um, gold in new places that we hadn't been able to explore before because the equipment was so rudimentary the first time around. I mean, it was remarkable what we were able to accomplish, but... But back then, we were using a an ROV, NEMO, of our own design that had been, uh, oh, you can think of it as having the power of a, say, like a, a riding mower, uh, 20 horsepower or 25, perhaps. Um, now we have a 200 horsepower uh uh, you know, magnificent commercial ROV of, of, of much more modern design and that we're down there and we can scoot around on the shipwreck uh, with much greater, you know, 
control and speed and everything else. Um, so it was a whole new game. Um, and it was just a, just a wonderful experience all around. And to see it after almost a quarter of a century again, um, it was, it was very emotional and very, very exciting. Was there any chance that when you went back to the site, you know, that there wouldn't be a profitable recovery of gold? You know, I read the great book, uh, Treasure Ship, about the brother Jonathan. And I know that you and Dwight Manley, in a late excavation of the site, after that original group had its own share of controversies and lawsuits, and uh, your attempt to recover uh, gold from the brother Jonathan at the end didn't really yield as much as one would hope. So... Going back to the SS Central America a second time, I mean, was there ever a thought in your mind of, boy, what if we get out there and, and there isn't that much? I had been a champion for, you know, all that time of the idea that there had to be more treasure on this site. You know, the the wealth of the passengers, in addition to the fact that, you know, there was, there was obviously uh, – another 90 some thousand dollars in in 1857 face value that must be in the commercial area shipment uh the commercial shipment area um you know the the passenger wealth just had to be had to yield something so in the modern sense i i was never very concerned that we would not find uh gold uh, there's always a question about how much you will find because when you get into the subject of the passenger stuff, it's all speculative. You know, I mean, passengers left accounts indicating that they had uh, $2,000 or I lost uh, $6,500 or I lost $10,000. And, and well, that's, a, that's an eyewitness personal account, but is it hearsay or is it, uh, is it, Accurate? Who knows? You know, people will say anything after a harrowing uh, experience like this one. Uh, You know, they were lost. The ship was lost in a hurricane. Some of them were rescued. Some of them were rescued from the water after they sank. Uh, These people were were through it. And and uh, whatever their accounts were afterwards, they were you know they were personal celebrities wherever they. They ended up the survivors of this uh, shipwreck. So I was confident that we would find uh, a wonderful treasure, and in fact, we did. Well, let's shift focus uh, to the topic at hand. Um, A great many people are very interested in finding out what's in store, especially collectors who have uh, caught the SS Central America bug and have already purchased some coins from the shipwreck before. The last time they were offered. The first time was a magnificent time capsule of the commercial enterprise that I described earlier about the the fifth and twentieth of every month treasure gold would leave San Francisco bound for New York. This was the economic lifeblood of the nation at that time. Uh, they counted on this. Uh, somewhere between a million and two million dollars in gold uh, uh, during the heavy seasons, uh, meaning after the uh, well, it's geological. The the spring floods after the thaw. There's lots of water in the northern California rivers. It produces lots of placer gold. It goes to assay offices and gets turned into ingots, and its value is determined, and it goes to the branch mint in San Francisco, and wonderful brand-new coins are produced. Um, eventually, it gets put onto a steamship like that, and a lot of it is headed out uh, for commerce elsewhere to pay for the burgeoning economy of California at the time. So uh, that commercial shipment, that we recovered the first time, uh, like I said, over 90% of it, uh, was a wonderful picture of that. Now, in 2014, we recovered the rest of that. So we have 45 gold ingots from the assay companies, uh, just as we had 
ingots the first time around. We got the rest of those. We have lots of double eagles. But then we got into, uh, well, we had completely new technology with a lot more horsepower, a lot more computer control, a lot more uh, information gathering, and we completely explored the shipwreck site. So we got into areas where we found um, lots of smaller deposits, which were obviously and likely uh, passenger deposits. These were um, bags or parcels which had fallen into uh, debris field areas and now constituted a small deposit of gold um, in an area, oh, say roughly two or three feet square on the seabed. And if you were to think about the SS Central America site uh, like a like an abandoned town, a ghost town, or something of that nature in the West, every one of these deposits would be considered a treasure unto itself. And every one of them has a suite of gold in them that says something about that entity, about that person. And some of these are just absolutely fascinating. Some of them are just uh festooned with foreign gold or California fractional gold. We we recovered four Cal fractional quarter dollars the first time around back in nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety one. They came up in in uh the sweepings from that commercial shipment area. Who knows? It it intermingled from a passenger area or something like that it happened. But now we have over a hundred of all different kinds, quarter dollars and half dollars and dollars and in both round and octagonal, uh, fascinating stuff. So, so I was going to say, it, and if you have never seen a Cal fractional quarter dollar uh, gold coin, I mean, this is a minuscule wafer thin coin. Quarter. They defy description. <laughs> I mean... I mean, it, it, people would not even think of them as a coin. Uh, we we look at them now and we marvel about how did you handle this? You know, I mean, it's um, you had to have them in some little leather pouch or something in order to just keep track of them. Um, they're about the profile of a of a uh, the end of a cigarette or a pencil, and and um, yeah, wafer thin. Uh, made by jewelers in San Francisco at the time. And then we have, we have, um, U.S. mint material of every denomination that was in circulation. Dollars, um, quarter eagles, three dollar pieces, five dollar pieces, ten dollar pieces, and of course double eagles. So we've got the whole suite of, of smaller gold that constituted the street money. And that's what's exciting. Well, it's all exciting to me, but that's something that is particularly exciting to me because you can like, you can just imagine, you know, this is what you use to pay for a night's lodging or for a loaf of bread or for, um, you know, it's your day to day commerce. It's not the vast shipment of business wealth from San Francisco to New York. It's, it's like, what, what did they, what did they use on the street? How did you pay for an evening's entertainment? You know, uh, it, it, it's great stuff. And the, the foreign gold mixed in there, you know, this is a time when gold was money. Now, in 1857, the Mint had, had removed the legal tender status of what they considered to be foreign coinage. But obviously, that was not exactly accepted in California immediately. Gold was gold. Um, there was a popular book around at the time from Eckfeld and Dubois, the, the assayers at the U.S. Mint, that gave the values of all of these foreign coins. And you can imagine that merchants out there uh, in California had copies of this. So they could say, oh, yeah, a sovereign, that's worth, you know, $4.85 or whatever it was. And I'm, I'm not – I have the book. But, but I'm not, uh, I don't have it in front of me right now. 
what was 20 francs worth? What was 10 guilders worth? What was uh, Peruvian, you know, to a uh, to a scudo worth? Um, these things were. This was the money, and and so we we really are just, you know, it takes you right there. Uh, I've never I've never experienced anything like this before in terms of uh, looking at this and just the flights of imagination and the mystery involved in, in looking at a suite of these coins and trying to figure it out. It's it's just very exciting. So are any of the uh, minor coins, the silver coins or the copper coins, I mean, these are obviously made of metals that don't react well to salt water over a period of time. But uh, whether they're salvageable or usable or not, did any of that material come up as well or was it all lost? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, um, there are a couple large scents sitting over here in a <laughs> in a uh, container not far from me in the lab. I'm I'm talking to you from my laboratory right now because I'm working day after day um, curating this material and uh, preparing it for market. Um, yeah, the the copper coins are you know uh, compromised. Let's say they they don't do well. Now there was a good deal of silver that we found, uh, dimes and quarter dollars and half dollars that were in bags that were inside a safe that we found, and those are extremely exciting um, and have some uh, considerable chance, I think, of turning out okay. Uh, that was an anaerobic environment, very blackened. Oxygen was quickly used up inside that safe, which is probably about the, oh, I can't think of an easy analogy for how big it was. But, you know, it's not a very big box, um, maybe two feet by three feet by three feet high, something of that nature. And... um we actually measured it on the ship, but I don't have that readily at hand. I mean, we put a measuring stick down and tried to get a handle on how big it was. Before we uh, tested it, found that it was not going to be movable. Iron does not do very well at all down there. And um, so we opened it on the bottom and removed the contents. Now, the contents are fascinating. Um uh, part of the contents were, was a bag that held uh, close to 9,000 dimes. Uh, inside the bag of dimes, there was another bag that had exactly $400 in small gold. And there was another sack that was all uh, quarters and half dollars. Uh, this, because of its position in the safe and because of the nature of those coins, I believe, was the ship's money. This was the actual uh, money that it took to operate the steamship from New York to Aspinwall, which is the Caribbean coast of Panama, and back. So this is what they'd be buying their uh, victuals and coal and, and paying the uh, those dimes were the daily pay of the sailors that were operating the ship. So we have the cash box of a major mid-19th century business. What a find. It is just amazing, you know. One of the images that I saw uh, come my way, uh, which I found very interesting, is a, a sort of a leather-looking poke that contained gold dust. Now... I can't imagine such a thing is uh, very common anymore. Uh, something like that to be preserved intact, I mean. So uh, t tell me about this item. Uh, to say the least, Charles, I mean, uh, it's, it, is a, it, it takes you right there. I mean, I mean there were a couple of uh, parcels inside the safe as well. Obviously had been consigned by... Um, a passenger or a couple of passengers, uh, a few, that were, uh, well, one of them was a saddlebag, literally a saddlebag that you'd put on a horse or a, or a donkey or a mule 
And it had been wrapped up and then sealed with wax so that it was tamper evident. And inside of that saddlebag were these big pokes of gold dust. And we have not opened those yet. In fact, we hope to put those on display um, at the upcoming uh, Long Beach Expo. And um, they're absolutely amazing, uh, talking about pieces that take you right there, uh, wrapped in the original, well, they're actually canvas, not leather, but um, they're uh, on the ship. When we would find these bags inside the safe, you could tell by the impressions in the side of the bag whether or not it held coins or whether or not it held gold dust. If you see, you know, round impressions pushing against the side of a bag because the, all the bags were cinched up very tightly and uh, tied uh, at the top, in some cases sealed, um, if they were not inside something else that was sealed, but all of these parcels were sealed um, to be tamper evident for their owners. And the uh the bags that did not show coin impressions we left the way they are uh there were a couple of vests people would actually wear their treasure but uh someone on board this ship had decided that okay I'm going to just consign this to the captain or the purser or whatever and he's going to put it in the safe for the voyage so let's bundle it up seal it with wax and and it will it will go that way. Uh, the vests had individual sewn shut compartments in which there was a poke of gold dust. In some case, there was a poke of gold coins. Uh, we opened the gold coin parcels on the ship because we needed to account for that. But the gold dust parcels, uh, we recovered separately. Some of them had degraded badly, so they were put inside of Ziploc bags and, and such, so we could contain all of this material. But some of them have, have survived quite nicely. And, uh, um, they're, it's amazing. Can you imagine, you know, somebody, this is the way you would move stuff around, you know? I read somewhere, and I and I can't cite exactly exactly where right now, but they got a slightly better price for raw gold on the East Coast than they did on the West. And someone also could have just arrived from the gold fields and didn't have the chance to uh, take the gold dust to either the mint or an assayer and have it converted into money. So they were just taking the raw stuff with them. Um, Amazing. So looking at the different denominations of gold and how it was maybe stored or distributed or littered about the wreckage, what does it tell you about the typical passenger on that ship and, and what they would have had on them? What sort of person would have taken that voyage? Well, the, the passage on the California steamers from San Francisco to New York cost $3,000 to to go in um in first class uh 2500 in in second cabin which was just down another deck and 1500 dollars in steerage which was simply a dormitory of bunks set up with a curtain for privacy and and such in the forward part of the ship um you had to be pretty successful to even be on this ship um in other words, in steerage, if you were to go in that dormitory with the bunk beds, it would cost you seven and a half ounces of gold. Um, that's a lot of money. So uh, these people were were well healed. Um, what we found on the site in terms of of these deposits is that yeah, they had they had gold with them, obviously. Um, and um, you know, wealthy folks. I mean, that's that's about all that sums it up. You know, they were. Uh, this was the way to go if you had made it. So essentially, the passengers were carrying gold, and the crew were being paid in silver dimes. 
So that kind of tells you pretty clearly about the class distinction between the people who could afford to take the ride and the people who were paid to make that ride happen. Oh, yeah. You know, the the uh, monthly pay of a of a sailor was somewhere around three to five dollars. And, um, you know, the uh, the people that were going on this voyage, you know, were paying fifteen hundred dollars for the for the privilege. So you know that it's it's obvious what an attraction the California Gold Rush was, and California in general, in terms of its its economy was just booming at this time and and uh, becoming ever more internalized. Uh, the loss of the Central America made Californians think more about keeping more of their wealth at home and not shipping so much of it out and maybe developing industry locally. The loss of the Central America spurred on in both uh, editorial comments in the newspapers and, in fact, uh, more ideas about the uh, construction of a transcontinental railroad in order to avoid the perils of the sea. Um, it was uh, quite an impetus for for a number of of historical developments. Uh, it exacerbated the Panic of 1857, which uh, was initiated by over-speculation in Western rail stocks and various other things, the solving of the Crimean War, and and so uh, not as much grain was being shipped overseas, and there were a number of things like that. But when this uh, – imagine, imagine if wire transfers of wealth like we have today – Imagine if a wire transfer of wealth could cost over 400 lives. That's the kind of impact psychologically that this had on people. Um, all of a sudden, this transfer of wealth that we've count counted on all the time, um, it's deadly or it's potentially deadly. It's a, it's a hazardous, perilous voyage. Uh, a hurricane could sink you. Uh, it's bound to change people's ideas about the uh, about the consequences of this industry, the shipping, and this voyage. By the same token, though, if you go on the ground, you know, across a vast expanse of the American continent, I mean, that was also a highway of death for people. So it really wasn't that easy. And it's four or five months instead of twenty-four days. So that's the that's the difference in the price. You know, I mean. Um, this, this ship also carried the mail. There were like over 30,000 letters that were lost when Central America sank. Um, this was, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine a time when California is now a state. Uh, we have to, people on the East Coast in the halls of government and the halls of, of commerce have to communicate with California. And, um, one-way communication takes 24 days. Two-way communication takes like a month and a half. Um, the telegraph didn't go through until 1862, um, which, you know, was instantaneous, or, or as they said in the time, now it can carry messages at the speed of the lightnings. Um, so uh, before that, it was either the speed of horse or the speed of steamship. So um, information flow was a very important part of the steamship trade as well. It's uh, uh, it's just a fascinating period. I mean, you know, like it's, it, that part is very foreign to our modern experience. And at the same time, these these people, um, these Americans who were on board, are not so very different than we are now. Um, they worshipped their technology, uh, perhaps like similar to the way we currently worship the internet or something like that. And but you know, there's always some kind of some kind of downfall or some kind of pitfall that you have to watch out for when you're when you're so enthralled with your marvelous technological age that you live in. So were there any uh, great rarities that were recovered? Any coins that are going to make a big splash of the market because, you know, they're seldom seen? Well, there's 
there's a lot of really cool stuff. I mean, you know, because we have such a such a time capsule here of of uh uh you know, obviously there are finest knowns that are coming out of the lab. I I can't cite them for you right now, but you know, uh, some of these coins were made mere days before they were put in a bag and or a box and sent to the East Coast. Um, some of them also have freakily um, survived a few years of commerce without actually circulating, you know, either uh, or actually showing any signs of circulation. Uh, so there are, uh, very high grade coins. There are also coins like, um, like there are some 1856 $3 pieces that look like they were spent every day of their lives. <laughs> I mean, um, it's, it's funny. Um, but you, you find these marvelous little things. Just this morning in the lab, I, I took this little cluster of two coins. Um, well, yesterday I took it and I, I put it into um, the curation process, into the solutions. And this morning they had separated. And um, there's an 1855S half eagle. And it was stuck to an 1844O half eagle. Well, there's 10 bucks with a story. Um, that's... That's the kind of fascinating stuff that we find. Now, the 55S, it's hard to tell what condition these are in yet um, because there's still a lot of deposits on them, and it will take another few days of, of curating in order to uh, reveal them for what they really are. But there's um, there weren't any astonishingly rare coins, although there's stuff that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like all of the uh, Charlotte and Dahlonega coinage that we have this time, uh, the vast number of gold dollars. Um, like I said, it was the street money, and so we have a lot more numismatic variety this time around than we had in the uh, initial 1988 through 1991 uh, recoveries. Uh, um, there's a uh, we filled out the list of the uh, privately minted stuff, the Pioneer gold coins. We have uh, twenty dollar gold coins from the USSA office. We have twenty dollar gold coins from Was Molitor and Moffat and Company. Um, uh, those were oddly missing last time around. Uh, although we found a great number of uh, Pioneer $10 coins the first time around, we didn't have a whole lot of 20s. A uh, few Kellogg and companies. This time we have very many more. Um, yesterday we opened up a little um, uh, parcel that had all Kellogg's. And like, how often do you get to open up a, a roll of uh, Kellogg 20s? Um, not very often, I would say. That's a uh, that's a fairly singular experience and, and unique to this treasure. Um, really, uh, it's just it's a new season of discovery here. Um, I had I was on the ship, and I was the one who at first identified this material as it came on board. I was uh, there as my role as uh, chief scientist and historian. And it was handed to me in the secure coin room, and I identified it until it, the archaeologist would then put the uh, coins into storage that would then go into a vault. But I had 10 or 15 seconds of coin to identify stuff. Uh, it has deposits all over it, rust and limestone and organic deposits. Uh, it's come from a, um, a geological environment where it sat for, well, in 2014, it would have been 157 years. So um, stuff has accumulated on it. And I was able to read, in most cases, the the bare identities of this material, but I couldn't tell anything about its condition. 
um, I didn't have much time with it. And now I've got, uh, now I have it to discover all over again. It's, uh, it's, it's wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful. You know, one of the coins in the picture, uh, set that I saw that uh, I'm sure is going to cause quite a splash, uh, if it does come to the market is, uh, this beautifully rainbow toned double eagle. Can you tell me a little bit about that one? Well, yeah, there's a, there's a fantastic array of, of blue and golden tones on this double eagle that came out. It's an 1857S, uh, the signature coin of the shipwreck. And uh, for whatever reason, it sat in an environment where this wonderful toning got on it. And uh, uh, we're, uh, we're all of us just utterly fascinated by it. It's got blue and golden and reddish and uh, it 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 doesn't happen under normal circumstances <laughs> let's put it that way and it's uh in both fabulous condition and it's got beautiful toning so what's the next step for the coins after they're curated uh, are they going to go to pcgs for certification and grading and then perhaps to the market well that's my understanding is that uh pcgs is going to grade them and uh, and then they will be uh, packaged for the market. Uh, exactly how that goes about is um, is somebody else's business, but I'll definitely be with it hand-in-hand uh, hand at all exhibitions and coin shows and everything else. People can look forward to uh, talking to me um, probably at great length uh, about this whole matter. Um, here in the very near future, as soon as the curating is done. Well, I look forward to seeing the coins for myself. Um, I'm going to be at the Long Beach show, and I'm going to bring my camera, so uh, maybe we can take a few minutes to go over some of these amazing things that you have on display. And uh, I look forward to seeing the coins. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, this is going to be the numismatic story of 2018. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Bob. It's been my pleasure, Charles, and uh, I look forward to seeing you and uh, all other curious, curious individuals, uh, both at Long Beach and at other uh, venues in the future. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please share it with your friends. Remember, you can download all 89 episodes of the Queen Week podcast for free from the iTunes store. For Coin Week, I'm editor Charles Morgan. Until next time, happy collecting. <laughs>